Hey, welcome to Wayfair. Now, if you've listened to Wayfair before, today's going to be a little bit different. During the season of Lent, we really focused on creating a space for spiritual practice, for contemplation and reflection. But now in the off season, we're going to move away from that format, and we're just going to pass the microphone to some folks in our community so that we can hear their stories. Because if there's something that we need in our world right now, I think it's some love and some understanding. And, you know, we can talk till we're blue in the face about ideologies and about theories, but I think when we actually sit down and we get to know somebody, that's when we really start to learn. And if we can shift our perspective just a little bit to see from somebody else's point of view then we can really catch a glimpse of another way of seeing in the world and find some of that love and some of that understanding. Now, in just a few days, um, Central Baptist is going to be helping out with a worship service at Douglas Park on Lexington's north side. And this service is in response to some violent acts that happened in Lexington, um, a fatal shooting that happened in the park in June of 2015, in which Kwame Elamine, an innocent bystander and the father of three, who was just out watching a basketball tournament, was killed by a stray bullet. And the year before, another fatal shooting took place just a couple of miles away in, in Duncan Park, where a young man, Antonio Franklin Jr., was shot by a bullet that was meant for somebody else. So today we're going to be talking about some really serious uh, subject matter Um, And we're going to be talking with the family members who were actually affected by these very acts of violence. Now, we were put in touch with these folks by Jody Cabell. She's a teacher at Henry Clay, a member at Central, and uh, she knows both of the folks that we're going to talk to today. Well, um, uh, Hiniwa Alameen is somebody that I have uh, worked with and admired um, for so long. She and I have worked together for, I think, oh, this will be our 13th year. She's an English teacher in our building. Um, she's also, um, I think that it's important to mention, um, you know, she's a, she's a, a Fulbright scholar. Um, and I have taught both of her children as well as worked with her as a, as a teacher, as a professional, as a peer. And she, um, I just remember, you know, two summers ago when her brother was killed, um, it just kind of took the wind out of, out of all of us. And, and there was this, I just, I think this kind of silence around what happened because it was the summer we weren't in school. And then I was just so appreciative of how willing she and her family have all been to talk about their experience and, and to respond to questions and to be real open about how it's affected their family and uh, how they struggled with it and how hard it is. And I think it's just amazing um, that she's so willing to share. And I just was really excited for us to have an opportunity to talk to her. And I think the thing that has surprised me so much is it it really heightened my awareness to how much this has happened, not just throughout the country, but in our community and um, how isolated, me personally, how isolated I have been from things like this. And when I started looking around and paying attention, I realized that there are several people in my life, students, uh, friends, peers, who've been touched by this kind of community violence. 
And yet it's something that until now I've never been involved in a conversation about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how did you, um, how did you get to meet uh, Ricardo? Um, Ricardo was a student that I knew. He's a student athlete. He graduated this year from Henry Clay. He's one of those people who's just a great kid. Um, everybody kind of knows who he is. Um, and I had heard of Ricardo because of his brother, Antonio. His brother had been had been um, shot and killed while playing basketball in one of the local parks here in Lexington. And then I had the honor of having Ricardo in class uh, this year in my criminal justice class. And it was something, I had three students this year in my criminal justice who were touched by violence in their immediate family. And I had individual conversations with all of them. And he was one of the students who was very willing and open to talk about, I said, we're going to be talking about, you know, local crime and things like that. How are you with it? And he was just so open in sharing um, what happened and, and how it affected his family. The thing that probably struck me the most about uh, Ricardo is the fact that he is not holding on to anger. He seems to be really intent on just living as good a life as he can in memory of his brother. And I think that's an amazing thing for an 18-year-old. And so I I was really proud to be able to introduce uh, our church to him because he's an amazing young man. And I think he's going to do great things in our community. But that's how I got to know him. That's how I got to know him. Hmm. And he would want me to also add that he's a great football player. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And he he would want me to say that. And he really is. So I knew of him far before I knew him personally. And so, yeah. So there you go. So Jody and Ricardo and Ahiniwa and I sat down together one afternoon, just a few weeks back. And we just asked them to share their stories to tell us what it is that we need to hear. So I'm going to get out of the way now, and we're just going to hear from Ahiniwa and Ricardo. of seven children of Omar and Nora Elamine. I was born in Lexington, Kentucky. My father joined the Muslim faith when I was four, um, and so that has always been a part of my life. Another thing that has always been part of my life is the fact that I came from a big family, one of the Elamines, and there were six girls, and we had one brother, Kwame, and we grew up on the north end of town, probably what I would call the west end of town. Town. I was um, <clears throat> bused to Beaumont, um, did a lot of reading, and then demanded um, that I go to Winburn during my eighth grade year because I didn't want to be part of a minor. I didn't want to be the only quote-unquote one in my class um, at Beaumont and Lafayette, I wanted to go somewhere else, so I went to Winburn for a year, and then came right back home to Beaumont and um, Lafayette and then Dunbar. Grew up in that area of town, and then when life circumstances led me down a different path, I qualified for a Habitat house, and I got to choose which area that I lived in, and I chose the same area that I grew up in, and have been relatively happy. 
I know that Lexington can be a very segregated place, but I've never had um, any problems living in that community until June 21st of last year, I think it was Father's Day weekend, when I went to the uh, Dirt Bow Festival, that's the opening day of Dirt Bow, to see a former student of mine play. My brother was also in the park. He and I are the only ones that still live in that area of town out of all my sisters and brothers. And while he was watching a later game um, before sunset, uh, two groups of young boys shot at each other and Kwame was the only one that died in that crossfire. my life um, growing up I didn't really have a father figure in my life so um, my mom basically played two roles his mom and dad she involved me in sports also had the help of my grandmother who I constantly stay at her house and she um, accepted me and my brother my sister was already in college and graduating and all with her life but um, without the help of my mother and my uh, grandmother I wouldn't be in the situation that I am now in the place they've put me through so much and I can't thank them enough. Um, growing up, we had a, a really good childhood, sports involved. We were on all-star travel teams and we could, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood. Um, as we grew older, <clears throat> me and my brother, we did grow apart a little bit just because he hung out with his friends and, and I just never was old enough to necessarily do that. We always we always keep in touch though. He was growing up. He played that father figure for me. If me and my mom were arguing, he would come in and he'd talk to me, tell me just just be quiet, settle down. If I needed someone to talk to, he was always there. We always joked, picked, and we fought a little bit. And that I mean that was just I couldn't ask for anything more than a brother than I had with him. Um, April tenth was the last time I got to talk to him. Um, I went back in his room, just and I just happened to tell him we got done with practice, a hard spring ball practice, um, and he was saying he's gonna come check out some of my games, and it was really good because over the before that winter he went through some things, and, um, and we were always there for him, and sometimes days weren't really that well for us and my family, and we just we struggled some days with Tony, and and when everything was overcame, we. Um, we figured that once he was home that, you know, everything was going well. He uh, he had gotten kicked out of Kentucky State University, and uh, he really didn't have his head screwed on. He was a college student, and at that point in time when he was murdered, he was trying to change his life around. He had picked up a second job and was working nonstop. He had planned on trying to enroll back at Kentucky State, 
to get his um, bachelor's degree, and that was cut short. April 14th, uh, I was at home just on my phone and I remember getting a, um, a Facebook message and it was, uh, have you seen your brother? Um, someone said he was in a park shooting and, and you know, I saw that and there's there's so many crazy things that I get in my Facebook messages that I don't pay attention to and I was like, no. And then I started to get on Facebook because I hadn't got on in a while and I kept hearing about this. Duncan Park shooting and I and then I progressively got worried and I was on my steps I remember and I started scrolling and I saw the girlfriend of um there's another Antonio in the park and that's when it really hit me then and she said um that I'm praying for the other family that it wasn't my Antonio but they said that there was another Antonio that was shot and killed and I didn't know that so um immediately I got off my phone and I called and called my mom it's like at least 20 times back to back and she didn't answer and and I called my grandma and and I was I kept calling her I kept calling my sister and um she didn't answer either eventually about 20 minutes after sitting there in tears on the steps cuz I don't know what's going on my sister called back and I told her um she eventually got a hold of my grandma uh, my grandma called me, I had to tell her, and then my mom called me, and then she eventually called the police and got everyone um, down there. I never really got to see him in the hospital at all. I just, I couldn't take that uh, feeling. Seeing my brother like that is just my um, older brother, so I never really pictured me being above him in that essence. So it kind of hurt seeing him in that stage that he didn't deserve to be in. I actually, the first time I saw him was um, that Monday that they pronounced him brain dead. I didn't know that. I, I, I believe my family chose not to necessarily tell me because I was at school and, um, and they were updating me. And as far as I was concerned, I thought it was positive updates. And I went to see him and then um, I remember I was. Uh, working out with the football team. We had spring workout or spring workouts. And uh, I remember checking my phone and my mom texted me and said, Tony's brain dead. And I just started breaking out in tears. And uh, a couple of my, I'd consider them, you know, as we've grown together, um, Maurice my, and Jordan Vaughn, and them told me that they had my back and that they were always gonna be there for me. And they continue, how they do check on me still. And um, that's how football became um, my like getaway from therapy and stuff because when I was out there I was able to clear my mind for that time being and I would agree it's the small communities that make the tragedies um, more palatable if they can be palatable but I think one of the questions that I still have, not about the shooting, not about the perpetrators, not even about whether or not justice can be served, but 
my remaining questions end up being more to as why the young people that exist in the world <clears throat> breathing the same air as I do have such a wanton disregard for other people's life and I know I feel that and I don't know what you feel Ricardo I feel like the wanton disregard that they showed for my loved one's life has everything to do with them being upset at the life that they have been given lack of opportunities um, the New York Times is doing a special on bystanders and people who have been victims of gun violence and they've told various stories and so I've read the comments on some of the stories and the stories the comments on some of the stories seem to be such as I'm glad it's not my community I'm glad it's contained to this type of community um, those people uh, knew what they were doing when they when they were in that lifestyle and I that, that, those kind of comments shocked me because, quite frankly, my brother was 42 years old. And of all the 42-year-olds I know, nobody is wilding out. Everybody is doing what my brother was doing, going to the local park, watching boring basketball games with children just so that we can help create a life for you know the second generation. 42-year-olds are not... Anyway, they, they deserve... By the time we get 40, we deserve a little peace in the park. Period. No matter what park that we're at. So I'm just, yeah. <laughs> those types of things shocked me. So I was glad that you reached out. And I feel like it's, the, the problem is, is that whenever we're, we're looking at fingers to point, like we see on like CNN, you know, black on white violence, white on black violence, that you can't pinpoint something like that because one story gets blown up. But when you're fighting in between your own races about whatever it may be, that's not right. We we should, and the value of life, because you don't know what's going to happen next. And to, to think so care, carelessly that you can go take someone's life and then not feel sorry about it. And, and Ricardo, I feel a little bit differently because I just wish the conversation would move off that. Be, it, probably because of my experience as a teacher. I wish the conversation... Ricardo, was I a good teacher? Great teacher. Was I a good black teacher? Mm, I just, I, what in the world, when I give love to people, they don't say, ooh, that was some great black on white love, some great black on black love. <laughs> Nobody ever says that to me. Love is just expected, but if, if anger from a group turns to, a, to other people, then they're just surprised about that. I wish the conversation would go back to love because, quite frankly, I don't think that those boys, perpetrators in either case, could have possibly put themselves in a situation like that if they had love for themselves, love for the community, the greater community in which they live, not Douglas Park, because who gives a heck, but more like worldwide love, love for humanity, love for God, love for self. That, that is where I wish the conversation would go, because... Anyway, it's only when it gets to the to violence that people are surprised and throw race into it, and it's just like, I've, like never ever have I received a card that said, "Thank you, Miss Elamine, for being the great black teacher." 
you, your blackness was great. What in the world <laughs> was instrumental in my learning? No. Or you give great hugs for a black person. Just what is that? No, I'm not. I'm, that. I wish that would move on. I know that in both cases the perpetrators were young men, and I wish I knew as a person, as someone who fears God, as someone who loves kids, I wish I knew what to do in what way my life could affect, could reach out and touch somebody <clears throat> so that they could turn their life around into a different direction. Because I do know this, and I did say this, and I've been quoted on saying this, I believe this. The bullet that stopped my brother's life stopped his children's chances, it's the, the percentage of his children's chances at a legitimate future. My nephew stopped going to school once his father was um, killed. And someone somewhere later in life is going to be affected because my nephew's life is going to go in this direction. It just, and someone somewhere, somewhere is going to say, well, his father should have taken him underhand, but because someone else didn't love themselves, that's what happened. Yeah, I, I agree completely about her um, bullet theory, about how that will affect others. Um, when the situation happened with my brother, I chose, um, I chose a different path because I, I was in my room, and I remember distinctly like just having a one-on-one -on -one personal time with me and I felt that my mom, she didn't know what to do. She was distraught, my grandma was distraught. Everyone was falling apart and they worked so hard to get where they were. And the worst thing that I could have possibly done was is to go looking around, grab a gun and go after people and that- Did you that, think about it? No, not at all. Never crossed my mind to get revenge or anything. I actually, um, actually talked to my mom about having just it's going to meet the guy because, I mean, if he can hear, I mean, how he's affected my family's life and I can look him in the eye and, or shake his hand and just tell him that I'm praying for you and I, I wish you the best whenever you do get out because, I mean, this is the real world. What he did as a minor affected what he's doing as an adult and he'll, he'll always be a, a felon and just that simple choice about walking away from a situation has, is going to affect him the rest of his life. And and I think that, like, you're here well, for... Well, he's always going to be a murderer, and you've forgiven him for it, or you explain that to me? I haven't. I mean, I don't think I've... Or you just don't have any hatred I don't or malice have any, towards him? I don't have any malice. Do you have forgiveness for him? Um, In some ways, yes, but I, mean, I, I honestly can't hate him because, I mean, I have a very good reason to hate and dislike him and wish him nothing but the worst but the way that I was raised prior to that is that I can't do that no matter who's done anything to me because if you've done me wrong then you know I need I'm like work to prove you wrong what you've done to me then I can overcome wrong. that what you've done to me then I can overcome that well then I'm I'm in my 40s and you're in your teens somewhere, not even at your 20s, and I will have to say that you are probably 
at a greater state of um, spirituality than I am right now because I don't know if I have forgiveness because I still live with my nephews and my niece and <clears throat> maybe because and, I, and you know no one's been charged with Kwame's murder so my sisters have nightmares I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit I, diff, I deal with things differently my sisters have nightmares they cry they call they're very very angry my father is very stoic about the situation but I just keep wondering about my nieces and nephews and you did not grow up with the father in your life I did Ricardo and my daddy I cannot imagine life without my daddy and for somebody to take a father away I'm I'm not at that level of forgiveness. And you would have to admit, I'm pretty lenient and lax, and I try to love everybody, but I'm not there, Ricardo. You walking with him, not me. Not right now. I have found more joy very small reactions to the human experience of losing a loved one. So it hasn't been any grand gestures, no nothing, no walk, no antivirus, no button, no <coughs> poster. None of that has given me as much peace as just seeing someone like Mr. I work with a man, Mr. Adnay. We don't speak. We're not in the same. We're in the same school, but we're not in this. We're, we're segregated in terms of hallways. But to know that every single time I pass him, <clears throat> he says, "Are you okay? Are you doing okay?" And I think to myself, that is that is compassion. And just like the, like Ricardo knows, I have hugs on Fridays, and you wouldn't believe this. How many students talk to me later and say, "Thank you so much for that hug." On Friday, I was not at school last Friday, and so I missed a hug, and so I'm really happy that you... And I thought in the very beginning of the year that those things were corny, and I teach seniors, so who wants a hug? But it's just the little bitty things that people do, like asking you if you're okay, someone baking a casserole, or not forgetting that I've lost my brother and mentioning him every now and then that makes me um, feel like a greater part of the human race. I know that throughout, you see on the news, oh, it's just another story, someone died. Like, it's a typical everyday thing. It happens everywhere, but it shouldn't. It can be avoided. So, and we take that, if we take that approach that it shouldn't happen, and to get in the communities, it's not necessarily just going over and having a little fundraiser and bring everybody to the park, but it's like trust. When there's, I know where my mom lives now, um, there's police officers that they patrol the area, but they see kids walking. They're not checking them because that's the stereotype that, that, that there is that police officers are going to check you. If you're a young, you know, African-American male walking at night, they're going to check you. But they actually try to engage in conversations. They get to know the people. They know them like they know what you're doing. You're on your way. You have a conversation with them. And I think once you like reach out 
and communicate, not just participate, but you have to communicate with individuals and you gain a trust and bond. And like Lexington, it is like, you know, which areas are heavily like Hispanic, African-American, Caucasian, whatever it may be. But we're all, we're Lexington as that. So we are one, we have, we share that. And we share those borders. We just have to learn to, to communicate with one another. There's issues, we gotta bring them up and address them. If the question before us was how to reduce violence in certain areas, I find that so easy, it's unreal. Mentors, mentor children to be the change you want them to see. The communities should not foster a negative relationship with police. They should foster children to want to be police. That would be, that would, I mean, then how in the world would you have any kind of police on community violence because the police are the community. That's like a no-brainer. Foster people to be teachers. Reach out and hug somebody. I don't want to get into a gun control conversation because quite frankly, I'm as American as the next person. Do you. However, I think that with with a nation that stands behind gun usage and the freedom to own a gun, I think comes great responsibility to mentor children into being people who are responsible. And I think, yes, it falls on the parents, but just like I have a responsibility out there when I get behind the wheel to smile to other people as I'm driving past, because one smile can change somebody else's day. I think we have a responsibility to the whole community, not just to our own children, in teaching responsible citizenship. remember when we were when we were finished um with the interview and uh and and when we were we were walking out and I was I felt I didn't have any questions to ask I didn't have anything to say and usually I've got questions and I'm ready but but you know didn't really I was so inadequate in this situation and I remember we were walking out and I was trying to wrap my head around uh all this and try to you know, uh, was just kind of overwhelmed with um, what they had experienced. And you said something. Do you remember what you said to me as we were leaving? No, what we can I, do? I actually don't remember. Okay, you said this. Because I talk all the time, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, it stuck with me, and this is why I remember it. You said, you know, we can we can bear witness. We do need to bear witness. I think we are a church that will bear witness. But, but we, you know, I just, I think that it's... Um, they're stories that need to be heard by everybody and the community because again until i was really faced with it head on i wasn't paying that much attention to what was happening in parts of the community that i don't have those deep connections to i just remember sitting in that room and we were just sit there was just this silence 
um, after we heard the stories. And I just, again, I find myself speechless time and again when I'm confronted with this, with these types of stories. So I don't really know how to be adequate, but I do know that it's important to be present. Thank you so much to Ms. Ahiniwa Elamine and to Ricardo Franklin. You and your families are in our thoughts and our prayers, and we can't express enough gratitude to you for sharing your stories with us. Thank you to all of you for listening to Wayfair today. It's a production of Central Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can find out more about us on our website at lexcentral.com. Thanks so much to Jody Cabell for helping to pull all this together, to Ricardo Franklin, and also to Ahiniwa Elamin for being so willing to come and talk with us um, to let us hear their stories. I'm Aaron Austin. Thanks so much.